At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Maybe you've had it. Maybe you've had someone near and dear to you die from it, or you're dealing with long-term effects from it. It was a pandemic that impacted each and every one of us. Three years ago, COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. Over 6.5 million have died from it, with 1.1 million of them right here in the United States. Is it over? No. But as we learn to live with the new normal, what's ahead of us? I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco, Chief Population Health Officer for Baptist Health. Here to help us explore and update us regarding COVID-19 is Dr. Samar Fami. He's the Chief Medical Officer of Boca Raton Regional Hospital and Associate Professor and Associate of Clinical Affairs at Florida Atlantic University. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm, I'm proud to be on a first-name basis with you, which we'll use for the, uh, for the podcast, but what would be appropriate to call you doctor or professor if I were introducing you? <laughs> no, please call me Sam, but, uh, but, yeah, <laughs> okay, doctor, man, but please call me Sam. Okay, even better. Makes it easier. So, you know, you, you were at the forefront of um, the COVID experience within the Baptist Health System at Boca Raton Regional Hospital, um, part of the leadership team that was vetting information in real time, making decisions to protect not just patients, but staff. Um, what generally would you say are the big takeaways that you have seen about what we've learned in three years regarding COVID uh, as a pandemic and as a virus itself? Yeah, well, the pandemic has uh, has taken a, uh, you know, a, a turn for the better throughout the last three years, as, as we've seen on the ground level at the hospitals. You know, initially when we started in 2020, the majority of patients that were presenting to the hospital with, you know, with COVID symptoms were, were very ill. People were with pneumonias in both lungs, people that, that were extremely short of breath with extremely low oxygen levels, many of them requiring intubation, being on a respirator in the ICU for weeks at a time. And our mortality rate, the number of people that were dying from COVID was very high. As the, the pandemic has progressed and as we've seen newer variants come about, those newer variants tend to have uh, you know, higher levels of, of transmission. So it's easier to transmit them from one person to the next. But the fortunate part is that they've gotten, uh, the disease has gotten milder and milder over the last two and a half or three years or so. Uh, so the people that, that are currently impacted with COVID-19, if you're healthy, if you're young, typically you're not going to get severe symptoms. And we used to see those people getting severe symptoms a couple of years back. But now the folks that are getting really sick with it are the ones that have significant medical problems, a predisposing condition, people that have a weaker immune system, or the, you know, the, the 75 and older groups, which, which tend to be more vulnerable. So that's the fortunate turn, but unfortunately, COVID is still among us, and it's still here, and it's still spreading. And I know, you know, anybody listening to this probably has a family or friend that has been impacted by COVID even in the last month or two. So it, it's still here; it's still a problem we have to address, but it has gotten milder. Yeah, and, and as you articulate, and we can maybe unpack that a little bit. Um, uh, you know, an attenuation of the virus might make it less severe, though, as you say, more transmissible. Um, we have weapons between vaccines and maybe medical therapies, which we'll get into in a, in a few minutes. 
what do you think is the role of the natural immunity or at this point as well? How, in other words, and this is purely speculative on your part, how much of the uh, less severe aspects of COVID right now, it's because so many people have had COVID and maybe the ultra high risk people may have already died from COVID and, and how much um, is from the, the change in the virus, if you will. And again, this is purely speculative. I'm just asking for your opinion. No, of course, but I think it's something everybody thinks about. Um, there were recent studies about a year back that demonstrated that natural immunity from COVID-19 was as effective as vaccinations. Um, so that that was encouraging, right? Because the goal with with getting, you know, with getting a virus stopped or slowed is to get a combination of vaccination and natural immunity up to a, a, a you know critical mass, up to a certain level where the virus doesn't have a chance to transmit as much. Now, if the virus was the original strain and everybody got immunity or a vaccine to that original strain, I think we'd be in a great place because the majority of the population would be there. But the problem is, just like our experience, you know, with, with HIV back, you know, in the 80s, and just like our experience with influenza, you know, even up to, up until today, viruses mutate and they mutate at different rates, and that rate of mutation makes it evade either some of the vaccination that were initially offered or some of the natural immunity that we initially had. But really the best place to be is to be somebody who's caught it, recovered from it, and gotten vaccinated. And that right. seems to provide the best level of protection. Well said. And, and you sit there and you watch, you read the papers, you watch the news, the political uh, ping pong that goes on about how we handled the COVID response. And it's always lost that the goal was not to necessarily prevent people from dying from COVID. Of course, that was the goal but not that everyone dying at once and filling up hospitals at once and getting medical staff sick. It was always about that flattening the curve, which gets lost a little bit. And we started with a lot of the protective properties, but as you just articulated, the vaccines and a natural immunity have all contributed uh, to, to the state we're in now where it's around us. We don't want to get COVID. We don't want family members who are sick to get COVID, but it's not to the level of, of just paralyzing concern that it was a few years ago. So, um, yeah, so, so with yeah. that, please. And, and just just to comment on that, I think you know, if you look back and evaluate our response in general as as a society to you know to the to the COVID nineteen pandemic and the vaccination efforts, I think we were fairly successful in getting a big portion of the population vaccinated. And I don't want that to get lost in, in a lot of the back yeah, and forth sure. dialogue and some of the misinformation. We vaccinated a significant percentage of our elderly patients and, and even younger patients, even though it wasn't as high a percentage, we still vaccinate a significant percentage. I think we wouldn't be living in this environment today where things are a bit more under control if we weren't successful getting those vaccinations out and getting the word out about vaccines and, and getting that out to, you know, to the majority of our population, making it free, making it accessible making it available at every pharmacy on every corner. I think all those efforts that, you know, that, that took Great. a lot of, a lot of manpower, a, you know, a ton of, a ton of push from whether it's uh, the, the governmental side or the hospital and healthcare side, it took a lot of push. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that now and that the majority of our population has some level of immunity. Right. It's always to go back and point fingers at what may not have been effective and not in the scheme of things of at the time we didn't know what was going to be effective or not. So we just, handled it uh, in a very uh, emergent uh, way. Um, all right, let's turn a little more clinical now. So um, let's talk about where we deal with a lot of patients. Obviously, you articulated people can get COVID, they can stay home, they can feel crappy for a few a few days. Maybe they won't feel poorly at all. Then people obviously with the high-risk conditions can be bad. So can you speak maybe why some people 
you can have a husband and wife and one will get it and the other won't, or one will be in bed with aches for a few days and the other will be asymptomatic. Is there any, any scientific knowledge as to why people respond differently to exposure to the virus? Yeah. And, and, and to be, and to be very transparent, it's hard to tell. And even till now, we haven't fully figured out why two people with similar risk factors react so differently. One of the theories out there is it's based on the amount of viral load that you're exposed to. If you're exposed to a huge amount of the virus up front, maybe it impacts you more and your body doesn't have a chance to build up immunity to catch up to it. But again, some of these, that's theoretical, right? To, to, to run a clinical trial to really test for that has, has been challenging. Um, what we do know is that people that have weaker lungs do worse. People that have weaker hearts do worse. People that have weaker immune systems do worse. And we know that our, in general, our bodily functions get weaker as we get older. So once you get to people in their 70s and 80s, they are at higher risk. So yes, you can have a, a you know, father and a son in the same household and the father will definitely get sicker than the son. That's something we know. But there are cases where two people with similar risk factors, similar age groups, and they're in the same place and one gets it and one doesn't. And even till now, it's, it's really hard to define who's going to get yeah. that severe illness and who, who wouldn't. And, and I think a take home from that is if you say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my friend had it or my relative had it and they didn't get it so badly, so I don't care if I get it, that may be a false pretense because you don't know what your response is exactly going to be, even though the younger and healthier one is, the, the general less concern we have regarding yeah. it. And, and I think what makes it even more tricky now is that we're seeing less levels of testing when somebody has an upper respiratory yeah. infection. Right. So initially, people were really alarmed about COVID and everybody who had any kind of symptoms would run off and get tested. Now, you know, we, we're experiencing people that just stay home for a few days, don't bother getting tested and just wait to recover. Um, and some that may not stay home for those few days and maybe spreading it without knowing that they have COVID. But there's a little less attention to it. And what, again, what we're experiencing is less masking in, in, in the community in general. So we know that you know, we're, we're more likely to get transmission with people that aren't testing and aren't masking, uh, you know, it, it, when you're looking at a population for population health. Sure, sure. So, yeah, so certainly when you hear statistics and stuff, understand it's just what's being tested and reported, but we don't really know what the full scale and scope is um, because of those limitations. Um, yeah, no, and, and, and to add to that, we, we, we don't know the full scale and scope because even those that do decide to test, a lot of them do at-home tests. And those at home right. tests aren't That's captured right. in our statistics, right? So, so it yeah, seems like yeah. we're 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 getting some data, and it's and it should it's giving us a, a clue towards what's happening in terms of the positivity rates for for testing and number of people getting tested. But it's not like the beginning where every test was run at a lab, and we can detect those statistics very clearly. Well, we we all recognize, as do the listeners, that COVID is still here. Um, let's talk about long COVID. Uh, getting a lot of press, and obviously, it's affecting. Um, um, uh, people in the community as well as the medical community. Um, talk a little bit about what do we know about what has been termed long COVID? What is it? What is it not? Um, and where, how are we kind of handling it uh, to the best of our abilities in the medical community? Yeah, so long COVID has been has been really recognized since the, the third quarter or, or towards the you know, second half of 2020 for patients that ended up getting COVID and really some of the symptoms of COVID lingered on for longer than expected. So even after they recovered, they no longer had fevers, they no longer had the pneumonia that they had with COVID, they no longer had the cough. But things like shortness of breath persisted or things like 
generalized fatigue or anxiety or rapid heart rate, or you feel like your heart is racing. Um, so those things have persisted and in some cases persisted for a year or even longer. That was labeled long COVID, although as an, it, it is, it does have a bit of a, uh, of an, of an, un, of, of this undefined border around what, what long COVID is. Some of those symptoms um, may or may not be related to the initial COVID infection, but you know, some of them, some of them could be. So it, it's been interesting to follow the progression of what's being defined as long COVID over the last couple of years. Um, although we still have to, till today, some, some patients experiencing long COVID symptoms and coming back months later saying they're still anxious, they're still short of breath and their heart's racing. One of the, the, you know, the, the, the positive news that we got through the pandemic is that there's a percentage of people with long COVID symptoms where vaccination ended up helping their symptoms out a little bit. So that, you know, that, that was encouraging. Um, you but, mean if they were vaccinated, they're less likely to get long COVID or they have, they have long COVID subsequently get vaccinated and seem to improve a little bit? I think if they were vaccinated, they're less likely to get long COVID. That was the initial thing. I think that so with, with vaccines, you're less likely to have severe symptoms. And we're seeing severe symptoms leading to long COVID more than mild symptoms. So if you get just a, you know, a, a sniffles and it goes away in a few days, you're a lot less likely to get long COVID symptoms than if you had bad pneumonia, ended up in a hospital, ended up on oxygen and then, and then recovered, you're more likely to get long COVID there. Vaccines lower the incidence of this of this significant disease. So in turn, it's lowering the effects of long COVID. That's one of the benefits of vaccinations that we've been trying to, you know, to promote. Um, in general, though, is there a treatment for long COVID? No, we, we don't have a clear treatment for long COVID. Is it easy to diagnose? No, because some of the symptoms are vague and it can cross over into other illnesses or, or even just deconditioning where people just are out of shape and from 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 recovering from the illness and it's taken them longer to get back into shape and get back into into their normal baseline of well-being so it's been a hard entity to define although there's no doubt that 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 there's patients that are that are suffering from those symptoms for extended period of time after recovery and there are some other conditions that are thrown out there we we spoke briefly before we started the podcast of something called pots postural orthostatic tachycardic symptom uh, syndrome. As a cardiologist, we were familiar with this, this syndrome before COVID, but we seem to be seeing it more. And we're not sure. It's basically when people, um, when they get upright, their heart rate increases and they can get lightheaded. Um, and we know it may be a medical component. It might just be, again, like you said, people who haven't been exercising or active for a period of time because they were sick, you know, how much of it is, is, is organic and how much of it's um, a, a consequence of, of the, the virus or other components. We're going to learn a lot. And I think, you know, a few years from now, we'll be able to look back and, and think we're in the dinosaur dark ages you know, of, of how we manage these conditions. Um, so more to come, I think, is the best way to uh, address that, no? Absolutely. This is definitely an area that needs more more study, more, more studies, more clinical trials. And, and really, we need to follow groups that have similar severity of illness see who develops long COVID and try to figure out why is it that those, those people are getting long COVID while other ones don't. Um, it definitely needs a lot more, a lot more research. And, and what we also know, and I'll, I'll give a little editorial, we, we know that we've not seen any clinical trials showing any kind of nutraceuticals or supplements <laughs> as beneficial in, in long COVID, though there's a lot of 
marketing out there uh, for the sales of those? <laughs> no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Study after study have showed things like, you know, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or but these things are not effective, whether it's for yeah. long COVID or for treatment of the acute illness itself. And right. it, new trials even this year that have come out that, you know, demonstrating the same thing. So I think we have certain treatments that we've, we've trusted uh, over the last year or so that we continue to use and others that we have proven time and again just aren't, aren't worth uh, the risk of taking. Um, so my last question, and um, uh, again, knowing your expertise and you at the forefront of all the kind of uh, treatments we were applying towards patients with COVID, um, extremely ill and otherwise, where do we stand now if, if someone has COVID and uh, where would we recommend they use Paxlovid, for example? Well, actually, we'll go back. Like, what is Paxlovid? Tell us where we would use it, how effective it is, and and then we can follow up just with the last component of where do you think vaccines and medications might be going in our COVID journey? So yeah, so Paxlovid. Paxlovid, Paxlovid is really the mainstay of treatment now on the outpatient side for COVID-19 in patients that have higher risk. So if, you, if you're 65 and older um, you, and you catch COVID, if, and it's recommended that you take a five-day course of Paxlovid uh, it's a combination antiviral medication, so it fights viruses, and it reduces the risk of severe illness and hospitalization by over 80%. So it is very, very effective at reducing. So, so let me, if I, I'm sorry, that doesn't mean that everyone who gets COVID will be hospitalized and with the med, 20% will still get hospitalized. It's of the people who would have been hospitalized. 80% reductions, right? I just want to make sure we're clear on that. That's, that's exactly right. Not, right. right. Yeah, so small percent be hospitalized will reduce those risks. Right. Exactly. So if without the intervention, 10 people out of 100 would have been hospitalized, once we add something like Paxlovid, you only expect two people out of 100 to be hospitalized. Exactly. So okay. it's really thinking Sorry, of it that no. way, reducing the risk of hospitalization in that population. Now, with that, no, thank yes. you for clarifying that. That's a, that's a critical point. But again, okay. if you're in that high-risk group, if you're on chemotherapy and, and, and immunocompromised, if you have bad diabetes, heart failure, bad lungs with emphysema or COPD, it makes sense for you to get on Paxlovid for five days to reduce the risk. Now, you know we, we've had experience with it now for, for almost a year. We've been using it pretty regularly and it is effective. It is effective. It's, it's keeping people out of the hospital, especially the high risk people out of the hospital. So it's one you should ask your doctor about if, you, if, if, you're, if, if you're testing positive for COVID. Um, there are other oral options that are less favorable now. There is a molnupiravir is another drug that we have really strayed away from using just because it's less effective than Paxlovid. Um, we're, we're using it for very, very limited population of people that can't tolerate Paxlovid. Paxlovid, the big problem with it is that it interacts with so many different medications. Uh, there's a long list of medicines that it interacts with. So before somebody starts on it, we really have to review all the medicines they're taking and adjust those medications or hold them for a few days while you take Paxlovid, and then you could restart them afterwards. So that was a limiting factor with, with certain patient populations, and, and we tried to find alternatives. But the mainstay is Paxlovid. That's what we're using on the outpatient side. For somebody that can't take Paxlovid, there is an option for an IV treatment called remdesivir for three days on the outpatient side. It is very difficult to administer. In fact, the majority of hospital systems and, and, and clinics around the country don't do it because of how difficult it is to administer. So, so it, it's very limited use at this point. 
but it's almost as effective as Paxlovid for somebody that can't tolerate Paxlovid. It's a three-day course of injections that you would have to come back and, and receive three separate infusions for three days. But again, it would work in a very limited group of people, but Paxlovid is the key. That's the one that we normally use. It's effective, it's tried, limited side effects, and, and, it, and it works really well. And similarly, over 65 or with, and with significant other medical problems, it's not something we push for or recommend for the general public. Um, no, again, so a healthy 35-year-old is not the person for that. But if right, you have risk factors and you're under 65, you would do it. Yeah. Exactly. So, so again, last thing, which was part of it, is is so you know, where where's our ideal state that we have vaccines? I guess where we're still recommending regular boosting of the vaccines. We still have an undervaccinated population, though we still have we do have natural immunity. Tell us with your insights and where the science is going between you know continued variants coming out of the virus and what the outlook would be for vaccines. Yeah, I think the the like we talked about earlier, I think the biggest issue with COVID, the biggest problem in terms of you know the treatment and vaccine development, is that the virus mutates pretty rapidly. We've seen multiple multiple variants since the onset of the pandemic. So, in my personal opinion, I think COVID is here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think we're going to see new variants as it spreads with these pockets of, of you know of, of waves or or these you know rapid transmission, and then it would die off and, and come back again. So when you're talking about long-term plan, we really need a vaccine that can attack all the variants or that can be future-proof in terms of finding a, a, you know, a common location on that virus itself, a little protein on that virus, an antigen is called, so that, that, that would not change with the regular mutations that we're seeing months after month with COVID. If, the, if we do find that, and there's already a couple of places that are being looked at and are in development for that, if we find a common location that doesn't get affected by the mutations or the change of the virus, we can develop a vaccine that targets that specific site and that would be long, longer lasting and more effective for any variant moving forward. Ultimately, that's what we're trying to get to. I still think we're two to three years away from something like that uh, you know, coming out and being available to the general public. I think... Um, we have enough now to hold us over in terms of the vaccines and the boosters and even the bivalent vaccines, which are the vaccines that target some of the newer variants, the Omicron variants and others. Um, we have enough to hold us over and to keep people safe, but ultimately you don't want to be getting multiple boosters. You want to be getting a vaccine that can protect you for newer variants moving forward. And that's currently in development. And I hope to see that you know, within a couple of years. Again, great information, Sam. Uh, you've always been at the forefront in our fight against uh, COVID. And uh, as you mentioned a couple of times, including your last comments, COVID is here to stay. Um, we'll be learning as we go forward, uh, as well as, <laughs> as, as you know, dealing with the consequences of the virus and its, uh, and its effects. Um, any final comments? I think you've, 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 you've touched on all of them, both, uh, both uh, medical no, and I clinical well, as a community, you know, knowledge benefits. Any final comments you want to share? Where, where, where you? What, what's your pain you know, points? I'll leave, yeah, no, I'll leave with one final comment: is that as you go through and, and talk to various people in society, you read social media, you read the news, there is a tremendous amount of misinformation still out there about vaccinations, about COVID, about treatment options. I, I just encourage everybody to do a little bit of digging when they hear a piece of information and don't take it at face value. Do a little bit of your own research. Go into you know some of the scientific studies that were done rather than the opinions that are shared and see what that tells you. I think when, when people do that, they'll be much more enlightened and much more likely to choose 
you know, a vaccination or a treatment that, that'll work rather than being swayed away from doing that just by general commentary or social media posts. So stay diligent in terms of the information that's the, that you're hearing and that you're reading. Do a little bit of your own homework and talk to your doctor. Your doctors are doing that homework for you. So they're a trusted source. Go ask them and see what they say. Doctors, we have nothing but the interests of our patients at heart, right? We want nothing but the healthiest population possible. So talk to your doctor if you, if you don't want to do your own research, but just don't take things at face value with the amount of misinformation out there. I, I think that's well said. It speaks to a lot of my philosophies and what I've taught my kids and I bring up another podcast. Um, you know, cynicism is basically why bother? It's wrong. Or there's a conspiracy, whatever. And that doesn't get anywhere. Skepticism to say, wait a minute, what does this mean? Does this make sense? Who's telling me this? I think that's very healthy and um, um, shouldn't prohibit you from making decisions and following recommendations, but know where they're coming from. And the trusted medical sources, the medical community has no interest in selling vaccine, pushing vaccines or getting people sick. I think that becomes more of the cynicism uh, part. So uh, well said. And again, hopefully you'll continue to be a bulwark against those uh, misinformation <laughs> sources uh, and people making poor decisions based on that. So uh, thanks again. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me today. Uh, to our listeners, uh, if you like what you've heard on this or any of our other podcasts, be sure to tell a friend or a family member about us. If you have any comments or suggestions for a future topic, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.